Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com to turn our attention to the world of credit. Henry Peabody is the portfolio manager for Eaton Vance, helping to manage more than $450 billion of customer assets based in Boston, and he co-manages the Eaton Vance Multi-Sector Income Fund. Henry, thank you very much for being with us, and Happy New Year to you. Maybe you could tell us, start off by speaking about this whole idea of investors holding on to cash because now they can earn something if they keep cash at hand. Is that true? It is. And that's a theme that we've been talking about for the multi-sector and core plus funds here at Eaton Vance for a while. And um, that is this year, you've seen a, a, a sort of an alternative asset to risk assets come into play in the form of a two-year note north of 2%. So I, that, that, that concept of holding, ash, holding cash is an attractive one. And most assets have actually underperformed cash, whether you're talking commodity, equity, credit, you, you, you pick your, you name it, and it's underperformed cash this year. So so um, it probably offers an opportunity to go the other way going into 2019, at least a little bit. Um, investment grade and high-yield spreads are selling off fairly dramatically here uh, in the month, and it's a testament to the market tending to you know, underprice but o- overreact to news, certainly when there's a lack of liquidity. So it's these markets that actually get us a little bit excited. So in other words, you're seeing buying opportunities in both high-yield and investment grade right now? I think we're starting to. And I, I'm not saying you need to go all in on anything, but this month you just take it, just eyeball the market in the month of December and you see several high yield names down 5, 10, 15 points. Um, Liquidity is being pulled from the market. There's a year end um, process um, and, and the market is, tends to overreact. Now, I, I don't think the market is priced for recession. That is not part of our forecast, but you're starting to see some attractive opportunities arise. And I think that having a shopping list, in spite of ho- the holiday season being behind us, but having a shopping list in 2019, early on, at least to start to nibble at this market, uh, makes a little bit of sense. Okay, but no, I, I have to wonder, have you been really active in the past few weeks during the lack of liquidity and some of the tumult? And if so, is there more of an opportunity in high yield or investment grade? Um, we have not been fairly active. Um, we, we think it's a, it's a fool's errand to get too caught up with price signals that may not be fully accurate given the sort of year-end lack of liquidity. Um, for us, I think that right now investment grade is starting to look reasonably attractive given the rate rise um, there um, since, uh, since really the beginning of last year um, with rates moving higher, with spreads moving wider rather aggressively. All that said, um, I do think that the opportunity in high yield is starting to present itself as well. Um, Several markets are looking attractive to us. We've talked all year really about the non-dollar space in emerging markets, and that's been one that's, it's hurt our positioning this year, but we feel very optimistic about it next year. Now you have domestic credit um, also filling in that gap. So it's it's really a market that gives multi-sector managers like us opportunity to take a bite at several markets at the same time and have a, a value approach as opposed to focusing on beta. So we're, we're pretty excited. Henry, I'm wondering if you could expand on that very thought about non-dollar, non-U.S. investments, particularly in Mexico, Brazil, and Canada. Yeah, so we think that the non-dollar 
space um, is a fairly attractive one. One, we, we feel that we're getting closer to the end of a Fed cycle, and whether it's one hike or three, the fact of the matter is we're closer to the end than the beginning. And really, Powell has talked for a long time about his desire to unwind the balance sheet, so I don't think it's one and done here. Um, this is something that the president has been aware of. All that said, we're getting closer to the end than the beginning. So that dollar positioning for us, or the non-dollar positioning, is an attractive space to be in. The dollar is stretched from a valuation standpoint. We're getting to the end of the cycle. A strong dollar is not in Trump's nor, frankly, Powell's interest here at the moment. Um, so we do think that that dollar likely comes off in 2019. Um, Mexico is an interesting th th place to talk about because we think that sentiment is an important indicator. Sentiment got very negative after AMLO was elected. Um, it pushed the, the peso to some fairly weak levels. We had the airport cancellation and several, you know, the market's reasonably concerned about a more nationalist, um, more, more populist president and his fiscal policies. But he came through with a budget that was relatively in line and the market reacted positively. Yeah. Now, reform there is probably stalled. So you don't think that we don't think you're going to see a major reversal in the peso. But sentiment was weak and you can get an attractive carry and an improvement in that peso by having exposure there. Canada for us is an inflation hedge. Um, we do think that inflation is most likely um, uh, the most likely outcome of fiscal expansion and policy going out the next year. So for us, that negative dollar, stronger uh, Canada and frankly, Australia, dollar block currencies are a good place to be to have an inflation hedge. Um, that's a good place to be while U.S. credit starts to become more volatile and opportunities present themselves there, which we're starting to see. So we could actually, you know, hopefully see the portfolio fire in several cylinders next year. Henry, just about 30 seconds here. I'm just wondering, could you see any scenario in which 10-year Treasury yields rise above 3.5%? Yes. Yes, I, I, I do. Um, I think it's possible if we see a couple more hikes out of the Fed, perhaps three, um, we should see the two-year note move in lockstep with that at this point, and that can push long rates higher. Also, oil is likely to start rising higher. It's reached a technical support level. You're going to see those cuts filter through and uh, a weak, uh, concerns about a weak economy coming out of the market. So you should see oil move higher towards the end of the year, and that could push inflation up a little bit as well. There's a great deal of uh, wage pressure building as we see the, the really the inequality, that theme in the market, labor versus capital, which is going to be so important, yeah. start to come out and rate, wages rise. So that could push rates higher. Henry Peabody, thank you so much for being with us. Love speaking with you. Happy New Year. I hope you enjoy it uh, with family and friends. Henry Peabody, Vice President and Portfolio Manager for Eaton Vance, talking about their outlook for 2019. Should be interesting given how much uh, there has been a sell-off, particularly in investment-grade uh, credit, which has underperformed in the United States' worst year since the credit crisis. Next year should be interesting. China. Joining us, an expert on China, Michael Hearson. He is the director of Asia for the Eurasia Group. He is in charge of their coverage of China. He previously served three years as the U.S. Treasury's chief representative in Beijing. Michael Hearson, thank you very much for being with us. Happy New Year. If we were to go to China right now, what kind of reaction do you believe is being expressed in government hallways and offices about the conversations that take place and then are publicized on Twitter between the United States in the form of President Donald Trump and President of China Xi Jinping? Well, I think it's 
very cautious optimism. There is a sense uh, on the Chinese side that clearly the situation is better than it was before President Trump and she met in Argentina uh, on December 1st. But they've seen reversals from the Trump administration on trade tensions repeatedly over the last year. So I don't think uh, the leadership in Beijing or the government is is banking on this truce lasting, but they're picking up signs from President Trump that he is eager to make some kind of deal work. And so I think they're feeling a little bit better than they were several months ago. Michael, I'm trying to understand how the uh, negative economic data out of China affects this whole discussion of trade, because we did get uh, the first decline or the weakest reading of uh, manufacturing in China since 2016 overnight. And I'm just wondering, I mean, is this basically uh, calling China's bluff, basically pushing them into a trade deal? That is certainly a big part of the Trump administration's approach. And to some extent, they may be misinterpreting uh, the signals in the sense that most of China's slowdown this year is really because of domestic policies, its efforts to rein in debt that have been underway for several years now. The the trade war is starting to really affect activity, and we've seen that uh, this month and last month. But uh, the trade war is not the main culprit of China's slowdown to date. So I think there's no question that the soft economy in China is leading Beijing to be more willing to make a deal. But when it comes to the very, very tough issues that really involve technology and that both governments regard as important for economic competitiveness, but to some extent also for the geopolitical rivalry, I think that's going to be quite difficult, and, and really no amount of weaker growth in China short of a crisis is going to lead Beijing to just you know completely uh, surrender to the U.S., so to speak. Michael Hearson, based on your experience, do you believe that the Chinese government supports intellectual property theft? Uh, that's a complex issue, and it depends on what we mean by IP theft. In terms of the you know, everyday concerns, trademark infringement, and and that kind of commercial IP theft. I think it's fair to say that China is far from perfect, but has been making progress in recent years. And that's partly because of demands coming from their domestic industry. If if China's looking to become an innovative economy, it needs to be able to protect IP, both for domestic firms and foreign firms. Where it becomes quite a bit more complicated is strategic industries, where the Trump administration has said that China is in violation of a 2015 agreement between Presidents Obama and Xi, um, basically pledging not to uh, undertake cyber espionage for commercial gain. So that's a more sophisticated, more targeted um, form of IP theft, where you know, I think it's it's fair to say the U.S. administration thinks China has not been holding up its end of the bargain. 
you know, Michael, I want to I want to just head back to the economy uh, in China for a second here, because I, I guess it's sort of interesting that the markets did not respond, both in Asia and the U.S., did not respond really negatively to the uh, to the economic data that was weaker than expected out of China. And there seems to be this belief that if the market, if, if economic data does decline in China, that just means that the Chinese economy, that Chinese leaders will unleash more stimulus on the economy. And it might actually be a net benefit for the entire uh, Asian region that it depends on China's explosive growth because it will juice growth. How much more ammunition does China have to stimulate its economy? I think they have considerably more ammunition. What the leadership in Beijing is looking to do right now is to stabilize the economy, stabilize expectations, but to only stimulate as much as they need to. The government, the leadership, is really still committed to trying to rein in financial risks because they recognize if they just allow debt risks to continue to to grow, then this could compromise economic and political stability, maybe not right now, but certainly not into the far future. So there's an effort to um, incrementally stimulate the economy, but really not to unleash the kind of wave of infrastructure stimulus that we might have seen, say, five years ago from a different leadership in Beijing. So I think all that is to say, on the one hand, I do think they have ammunition. But on the other hand, the market shouldn't assume that Beijing is going to go past, uh, going to go back to this previous playbook of just flooding China's economy with loose money. I think we're past that point, And so anyone who's expecting a V-shaped rebound in China's economy, I think, is being over-optimistic. You have experience dealing with and meeting with a variety of actors and players in China. Do the, do the Chinese see the map of their country surrounded by threats or by opportunities? Well, I think it's a very interesting point. I mean, you look at um, Beijing's geographic and geopolitical situation, And they see, if not immediate threats, certainly a neighborhood that's not nearly as uh, favorable as, you know, in the U.S., where we're surrounded by Mexico and and Canada. Um, And so much of China's foreign policy has really been focused, for the most part, on its immediate region and trying um, trying to focus on issues near at home, like Taiwan or like regional stability. Where Beijing has been moving in recent years under Xi Jinping is looking to project force. And some of that is about challenging the United States for military supremacy in Asia. But it's also a reflection of the fact that China's economic interests now are increasingly far-flung. Through the Belt and Road Initiative, China's been building ports and infrastructure and industrial parks and factories really all over Asia. So China can no longer afford to just be looking in its immediate neighborhood and is really looking to become the kind of military power that can uh, protect China's assets overseas. Yeah. Michael Herson, thank you so much for being with us. Definitely going to be a continued theme for us in 2019. Michael Herson is the director uh, for the Eurasia Group, focused on the Asian region. Also, uh, he did serve as the U.S. Treasury's chief representative in Beijing. So really coming to this uh, with authority. 
perhaps one of the most hotly debated issues of 2018 will be in retrospect, how much of the positive performance in the first half of the year was due to a sugar high from the tax cuts, and how much did the tax cuts provide lasting longer-term growth in the United States? Joining us to weigh in, Chris Mackey, founder of Solutionomics. He is also a contributor to the Fed Beige Book, has uh, advised the Fed and also a number of the biggest U.S. companies. Chris, thank you so much for being with us. I would love to get your take one year after the tax cuts were implemented as of December 22nd. What have the biggest effects been from it? Well, it's great to be with you. It's a great way to finish the year. So, you know, the the biggest effects were in the first half of the year, they were more psychological than anything. Markets were very excited. They expected uh, significant and sustained stimulus. Unfortunately, the reality was that uh, it was a sugar high. Um, it was mostly a psychological sugar high more than an economic sugar high because, you know, 11 months into this, what we're seeing is that, you know, wage growth has grown a whopping 12 cents an hour or about $240 a year more relative to the rate of wage growth prior to the passage. So nowhere near the four to 9000 that was promised. The job growth um, is about one quarter of what was promised. And maybe most surprisingly, uh, given the uh, immediate deductibility and 100% expensing of equipment, equipment investment growth actually is down nearly $30 billion, uh, versus the same period the prior year. So uh, it hasn't been as advertised, but there are things we can do to improve it and make it uh, better. Chris, maybe just talk about the concept of conditionality and how that affects the overall tax bill. Certainly. So the, the bill was passed with the concept of unconditionality and universality. So basically what the bill said was uh, any company and every company, including companies that are firing Americans and companies that are uh, not increasing wages, uh, will get the same tax cut as a company increasing jobs in America and increasing wages. So what happened was you actually created a disincentive. You basically said, look, you can do whatever you want, and whatever that is, we're still going to give you the same tax cut. Now, the opportunity is to have an incentive-based or condition-based tax policy where you say, look, if the objective is to create more jobs and to increase wages, then let's have the companies that actually who are doing that or thinking about that, let's provide them the incentive to go ahead and do that. And here's the great thing about it, Pim. If you limit it to the companies that actually increase hiring and increase wages, you actually have a bigger pile of money of tax cuts to give to those companies, creating an even greater incentive because you're not giving it to the companies that are firing and not increasing wages. So, Chris, it sounds like you have a lot of criticisms about how this tax cut was unrolled and and sort of how effective it was in stimulating the U.S. economy. Is there anything good you can say about this tax cut and its effects? Well, the thing that I can say that's good about it and its effects is that it got people focused on corporate tax policy because corporate tax policy for years um, has been a hope-based corporate tax policy. You cut corporate tax rates and you hope that jobs are uh, created and wages are increased. So we've got people focused on the right subject, which is corporate tax policy. And now we need to take it to the next step in 2019. 
and make it a tax policy that is ROI-based, a return on investment. We really need to bring more of the approach of the, uh, you know, the corporate world, the business world, and ROI into our corporate tax policy. Chris, are you surprised that the debate or the attention that has not been given and not been had over the increase in deficits as a result of this tax move? <laughs> well, you know, there... It's interesting um, when you use the word debate. Um, I'm surprised there hasn't been more discussion. Um, the debate is pretty much an open and closed case. I mean, you know, the latest estimates uh, from the Congressional Budget Office are for a $1.9 trillion increase um, in deficits over the next 10 years. Um, you know, that's a, that's a staggering number. And what's unfortunate is that, you know, in business, if you invest effectively, if you're investing $1.9 trillion, you would expect to get a very good return on investment. The problem is not only the debt that we're taking on, but what we're not getting for it. And that's why I'm focusing on the concept of return on investment, because we really need to bring that discipline from the private sector, from the corporate world, to our corporate tax policy, because it's not just the debt. It's also the fact that we're not getting what we were promised for that debt. So how hopeful are you that this could be uh, sort of transformed into a tax policy that does have a net beneficial effect on the U.S. economy uh, versus one that will simply uh, increase the deficit without a, a commensurate boost to the economy? Sure. Well, you know, we're finishing up 2018. Uh, we start to look at our resolutions for 2019. And I hope that one of the resolutions is that Congress and the president can work together and as opposed to sniping at each other and trying to angle for political uh, positioning, uh, they can look at it and say, look, how do we really get a better ROI? Because, you know, I can tell you, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, just looking at corporate tax policy and saying, well, this didn't work, so let's just go ahead and, you know, universally and unconditionally raise tax rates to where they were before we cut them, that's not an answer either, because that still doesn't get to the concept of ROI. So, you know, I guess I'd say, as we look to a new year, um, you have to maintain hope. And I think over time, as members of Congress get familiar with the concept of ROI, and their constituents, hopefully, start getting more involved and saying, look, this is something that we demand. We design, demand a better return on investment. Then we can start to see things change and a different approach to this. Yeah, but Chris, I mean, you've got demands for the government to open when over 800,000 federal workers are not being paid because of this federal government shutdown. They can't get the government open. What is your prognosis for them having a serious conversation about dealing with the implications of this tax cut? Sure. Well, when the uh, polling data and when the uh, election results start to affect those who are involved in this and those who are making the decisions, um, then you'll start to get to see some change. Um, it, it's, it's an uphill battle. But look, we're the country that sent a man to the moon. We're the, we're the country that uh, has cured multiple diseases. What I do know is that Congress saying, oh, we're not going to do it differently or it can't be done is not acceptable. And if it's not, then it's time to vote them out. And we saw in the last midterm election, we saw a significant increase in voter turnout. We saw a significant change in the composition of the House of Representatives. So it is very possible. 
All right. We'll have to to leave it on that hopeful note. Chris Mackey, the founder of Solutionomics, talking about the results, the ramifications, and the potential for the U.S. government and its economy and tax cuts. If you ask the chief executive officer of a major U.S. corporation, what is your biggest fear? A lot of them will say a cyber attack. And so to go into their worst nightmares, let's bring in Michael Bremer, vice president of data breach resolution for Experian, uh, who's joining us with some of his predictions for the biggest cyber risks heading into 2019. So, Michael, let's look into our doom globes and find out, you know, what can we expect next year? Well, we made five predictions, and this is our sixth year doing these predictions. Um, it really uh, starts with the opportunity for biometric hacking. Um, biometrics are in our airports, uh, time and attendance to log in, law enforcement, device access, because we, you know, we have facial recognition or fingerprint recognition to get in your phones as well as banking, and it just takes and uh, a bit of a misconfiguration or adulteration of the biometrics to be able to get in and pass at least one layer of authentication. Now, now um, Michael, these, this can happen because what? You can manipulate the sensors? Um, absolutely. It's as simple as putting a piece of uh, sellotape um, over your fingerprint and using that actually as someone else's fingerprint, or they now have uh, 3D printed facial uh, masks that that mimic your facial recognition features to be able to get into uh, a cell phone. So it's as simple as that. So, Michael, moving on to the next nightmare scenario. I love this. It's sort of, you know, sitting down. What's the worst thing that we could think of? Someone hacking into your bank account and taking all your money. Is that a realistic possibility? Well, um, given the fact that not all banking institutions have uh, multiple factors of authentication. It just takes, in some cases, someone getting your password, let alone using your phone and, and being able to spoof an, a uh, text message over there. So, yes, and the worst case scenario is if you have a, a debit card that may be connected to your banking account and or your line of credit and you use that in an online transaction, somebody gets a hold of that and they can drain your bank account that way as well. One of the big growth areas in 2019 is going to be online gaming and betting, specifically the expansion of online sports betting. Do you believe that that's going to be a target? Well, the the gamers, um, they like to be anonymous. They have great computer skills and the fact that you have about 2.2 billion gamers worldwide that operate in many cases very comfortably on the dark web. And that's where the information is bought and sold. So particularly with on, online betting, which is one of the fastest forms of, of online activity, um, and there's money there, the old adage, follow the money is going to be there. So I think online betting is going to be a real target in 2019. And then, of course, you have the cloud and the possibility that somebody breaks in and gets all of the information that a lot of big companies have believed has been stored away securely. Is that realistic? Well, we've had three breaches this year, um, Uber, Time Warner, and Accenture, that in fact, the root cause was a misconfiguration of the servers in the cloud. 
And given the amount of data that's out there, about a billion gigabytes at last count due to um, or from the sources, um, it makes sense that there's going to be an opportunity for, with one misconfiguration, someone to access a ton of data all at once. Michael, when you use uh, the facilities at an airport, does that include the public Wi-Fi system? One of, one of the things that I always recommend when people ask me, what are the consumer tips that are most important? Never use public Wi-Fi. doesn't matter if it's offered free in the hotel or in an airport or a public park. Um, it really can, because there aren't the security protocols in place, um, even sometimes with your own VPN or having encrypted data, it's still just not a good idea. So spend the extra few pennies, use your cellular data, and avoid any public Wi-Fi. So, Michael, do you use all of, do you like avoid common electronic devices at this point? Do you just sort of hole in your home and use cash? (laughs) I wish it was that easy. Um, Unfortunately, I haven't gotten to that point. Um, I'm I'm still a tech junkie. I use a phone and a computer and and operate um, that way. Um, I do stay away. I haven't gone to one of the voice recognition, whether it's Alexa or an Echo, because uh-huh. I love the story yesterday. I think it was the the uh, fifth grader who was using Alexa to get his homework done, and his mom caught him at it. I thought that was pretty funny. Yeah, if that's the worst that happens, though, it's not that bad. <laughs> not Michael, that. Br- exactly. Michael Bremer, thank you so much for being with us. Mike- Michael Bremer is Vice President of Data Breach Resolution at Experian. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.